0: Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry Award winning books, past and present.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Today we're interviewing the Newberry Honor winning author, Vera Hira Nandani, courtesy of the Miami Book Fair which is November 14th through the 21st. And Vera is just one of the many authors from around the world participating in the Miami Book Fair, the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. They are looking forward to sharing their work, thoughts, and new ideas with everyone in person and online. Please visit Miami Book Fair for more information or follow MBF at... Hashtag Miami Book Fair 2021.
2: You can also check out some of the other cool authors who are there, some of whom we've already interviewed, like Meg Medina and Jason Reynolds, and some of whom we are interviewing imminently, like Savannah Ganeshaw, Jennifer Holm, and Jasmine Warga. Thank you so much for joining us, Veer.
0: I'm happy to be here.
1: I would love to hear some of your inspirations for writing The Night Diary. Sure. Well, I had thought about writing
0: a, a book about the partition of India in 1947, when India became independent from British rule and split into two countries, Pakistan and India. And my father was born in India, and but he was born in what is now Pakistan, and his community in the areas called Sindh, was affected by the partition as well as everybody in India. And the two main religious groups in India, Hindus and Muslims, had conflicts during that time that I, I could get into more, but but it affected many people's lives, and people found themselves sort of on the wrong side of the border when partition happened. And so about 14 million people had to leave their homes during this time, and my father and, and my family my grandparents and my aunts and uncles were one of those families that was uprooted and became refugees during that time. So I grew up hearing about what happened, but from a really young age, I didn't fully understand what it all meant. And I I just felt curious and also kind of, you know, it it was frightening to me of this thing that happened that, that made my Father's family just have to pack up and leave one day and get on a train and hopefully find a safe place to live over the border and and all of that and then they did survive and rebuild their lives. But as I grew up, I, I wanted to know more about it. And I grew up in a small town in Connecticut. I I didn't learn really anything about the partition in school. Maybe one line about you know the creation of Pakistan or India's independence, but. I I wanted to understand it more, and so I I was intimidated by writing a book about it. I felt like, can I even do this? I wasn't even that good a history student. You know, who am I to kind of take on this material? But I, I really just felt this very personal kind of drive to understand it more, and for me, writing fiction is a way to understand anything more combining that kind of imagination over real events. And so I started, it took me many years. I'm glad I started when I was a little more of an experienced writer and, and here we are. So that's, that's the long, long answer.
2: (laughs) Well, I think that that attitude of being a little intimidated to write about that is super appropriate for the age group that you're writing for. Like, you know, the main character there, she you get the impression at the beginning that she doesn't really know what's happening. I mean, she says she doesn't know what's happening, even though it's her culture. And, you know, as the book goes on, she starts to understand more about the basis of the conflict, even though she still doesn't understand why it's necessary. So I don't know, it feels like she's learning and you, the reader, are learning as you go along. Because, you know, as an adult, I didn't know that much about the partition of India either, but this really illuminated a lot of it for me. So I can only imagine that kids reading it would really benefit as well
0: sure and and i felt like you know it would help kids of a a the new, sort of newer generation if they have a family connection to partition i've heard of families that have sort of reading it in kind of a three generation way of the the you know middle school age child and then their parents and then their grandparents and it gives a vehicle to maybe talk about that history that they didn't have before and then of course people who just don't don't have a connection or don't know anything about it to to know this about this huge global event and everything we can kind of learn from it and take from it and then also to open up curiosity about other world histories that there's plenty I don't I don't know and and this has only made me more curious and more aware of what i don't know. and so i think that's also a good thing as a younger reader to open up that curiosity of what do i not know about the world what do i want to find you know out more where are the places that i can find out more.
1: did you spend a lot of time speaking with your family to get background for this for for yeah. the night diary? yes.
0: You know, I started with my father and I had extensive talks with him in a way that I, I didn't growing up because he didn't necessarily want to tell me, you know, sort of more of that protective, you don't want to tell your kids, you know, how complicated and maybe possibly awful the world can be or people can be. And so there was a kind of protection around it. And I didn't, I, I would hear it, you know, in passing, like this thing that happened or my aunts and uncles would mention something about it. My my grandparents aren't living. They, they died before I was born. So I never got a chance to talk to them um, as being parents at that time, you know, what they what they felt like. But I talked to other relatives and then friends of relatives that Had gone through that time. And then I was able to find resources online. So there's the partition archive of 1947.org. I think I'm saying that in the right order, but they have collected hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of oral testimonies from people who had to leave from the direction of going from India into Pakistan and from Pakistan into India. So Muslim families, Hindu families, Sikh families people that were all affected, and I wanted to have, you know, my, my father's Hindu and my family's Hindu, so I had that perspective. But I really did want to open up the question of, you know, Nisha, who has a Muslim mother and a Hindu father, and her country is being split apart, and she has this connection to, to both sides, in a sense. And so what does that mean for her and her identity? And so that was a question I wanted to open up. But I still felt like the family should sort of be seen as a Hindu family traveling in the direction that Hindu family would travel at the time, because that was the, those were the stories I was most connected with. So, you know, that is part of the decision that I made to structure the story in the way that I did, where she's writing letters to her Muslim mother who's no longer living. So there is, you know, just a lot to balance there, but at the same time have that perspective of all the different religious groups and what they went through.
1: I also really connect in the night diary with your imagery and I was curious what research you might have done to not just get the facts or like the logistics of how things happened but just the, the like the atmosphere and cuz you know it's 1947 and translating that time period to a younger audience I'm just I'm curious what other research you might have done
0: yeah well the internet is an amazing place. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a lot of um there was a lot of photography taken during that time and famous photographers recorded a lot. It pictures that I did look at that just there are times I had to just kind of stop my writing. I mean, there's so there's so many pictures that are so disturbing and so tragic of just all the violence that happened. You know, one to two million people died during this time. About seven million people went one direction, about seven million people went in the other direction. But there were a lot of there was so much violence that was created in kind of a a cycle of revenge of, you know, you did this to us, so we're going to do this to you. And then it just kind of never stopped. I mean, it's still hard to understand how the violence escalated so quickly and how so many people died and and communities that were living together peacefully, like my father's community in Sindh and multiple religions living together. And then, you know, these, these how powerful and then sort of the British kind of moving things forward and the lines being drawn. And then suddenly everybody's feels like they're, you know, ad- against each other on one side of the line or the other. And how that does affect people psychologically. And then, you know, just the panic and the chaos and the losing your home and not having enough food and not having enough water. So so trying to figure that out. But then seeing the images, Life Magazine, just there's so many images of partition. So I would look, well, OK, they're going to take the train. You know, here's here's multiple images of different trains that were taken during that time, or here's, you know, refugees standing in line for water, or here's what the desert looked like, here's what the homes looked like. And then, of course, my father explaining, you know, everything he knew and remembered imagery-wise at the time. So it was just a combination of a lot of things.
1: I'm really curious now, because I would like to see yeah. some of them. She's a librarian. Um, <laughs> yeah, Were they open? open I... web searches, or were they in the partition archive, or? Yeah, both.
0: Both. Okay. Um, and then there's the partition museum in Amritsar, which is also online. So they've collected a lot of visual representation of, of partition and, and just different people and objects and, and images of, of people just like kind of families huddled in a desert, you know, starving to death. I mean, these are, you know, these are not pleasant photographs. But my my father's family was able to get on a train and go to Jodhpur, in, and then, you know, they had this big compound where they used to live. My my grandfather was a doctor at the Prakas City Hospital, just like the Papa character in the book, and they had a really comfortable life, and then they left, and they were all in kind of a one-room flat at first in Jodhpur, and then my grandfather actually had to stay because they didn't have a new doctor at the hospital, and so... The story is, you know, he followed them about six weeks later and just kind of escaped in the, in the middle of the night because he just felt like his whole family had suddenly got on a train. And, you know, it's not like he could text them. Right. So he didn't, you know, wasn't sure if they were OK. And, and he had to eventually just leave the hospital and go by himself over the border. So that's different than what happened in the in the book. And and I really just wanted to between the visual images and the the research that I did and then my family's story I wanted to try to create a story that could hold a lot of different experiences and images not just my what my family went through to be more universal experience but still it's still through my lens my family my research and it's just one possible story about that time.
2: But I think it's so Interesting that people without a connection can still for an example, Nisha in your in your book, is on the train and she sees this horrible situation where people get killed right in front of her and she says that it changes her, right? Mm -hmm. But that changes growth, right? I'm sure that change was very unpleasant, but it's for the better. And she's forced to make that change because of the situation. But Whereas earlier in the book, she says that she hoped that she could just sort of ignore what was happening and that she could stay where she lived and where she was comfortable. I think Mm -hmm. that readers who are younger and are not forced like physically to face that kind of uncomfortable change Mm -hmm. can still really benefit from from putting themselves in somebody's shoes like that, because, you know, you we always say that that books are what build empathy and just putting yourself in somebody else's position is so helpful just for kids in general growing up. And this is a perspective that I have not seen before in kids literature or even in grown-up literature actually. And mm-hmm. I just think that even without a connection, it's it's amazing what you can get out of it and how vivid it is.
0: Well, thank you. And there are a lot of parallels you can make to other kinds of partitions in history mm-hmm. and other refugee experiences. And then there were even people reading it recently, you know, in the last couple years where I would have feedback of, you know, when they stop at their mother's brother's house, their uncle's house, and they're there for a while, but they're not, they're supposed to kind of stay inside and things are dangerous outside. People were making connections with what they were experiencing in the pandemic. And sort of like lockdown and stuff like that. So, and then where, where are we after a traumatic experience? You know, what have we learned? How have we been sort of strengthened and weakened at the same time, you know, because the the trauma that you experience, it's always with you and it does give you strength, but it doesn't just give you strength. You know, it gives you, it gives you wounds too. And, and to sort of look at that whole that whole piece. I think for young people, it's good to know that, you know, when you go through hard things, I think of messages, it'll make you stronger. It's complicated. You know, it depends what the hard things are and it depends how traumatic they are and how much respect you have to give to yourself about healing. And of course you learn things and hopefully it's not, you know, the the learning and the growth outweighs any kind of trauma,
2: but that's not always the case. It's true. I was really struck by one line in the book where she says, you know, I'm, I should be happy now, but my brain feels like mush and I'm, you know, you're not feeling what you're supposed to be feeling. And I think, yeah, you're right. Like if you consider it in the context of the pandemic, for instance, you know, yes, we're getting through it and yes, we should feel happy. There's, you know, there's progress, but it's not done. It's not like a trauma is over when it's, you know, there, There is no real over. You just have to kind of work through the aftermath.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's hard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Obviously, The Night Diary has got, you know, this big historical event, and it's got very big themes of perseverance and determination and family. Are there any themes that you feel like aren't talked about enough that you really worked hard on in the book?
0: Hmm. Well, you know, I, I don't know if I feel like they're not Talked about enough, but both Nisha and Amil are struggling with some things that they feel are limitations for them. So Nisha, you know, ha- has trouble speaking outside of her family. She, you know, it really is a, a, a kind of a social anxiety that she has that that is hard for her. Uh, she finds it really freeing to express her thoughts in a diary, and Amil a lot of people say, so, you know, is he dyslexic? And he he is. But I was trying to reflect in 1947 and looking at sort of, you know, looking at what was sort of known educationally at that time and and learning differences or or different kinds of, you know, like a social anxiety that, that Nisha has. They wouldn't necessarily have had that knowledge or the right labels to use and there was a lot of you know maybe just confusing like why why she's just very shy or he doesn't try hard enough at school and sort of that misunderstanding I think I tend to tend to write about that a lot for different reasons so I think the partition you know I end up talking more about that but that was an important part of their their characters and I hope that kids also connect to that in whatever way maybe they feel different or have certain boundaries or limitations learning differences whatever
1: that's yeah that's really great to hear you talk about that I I noticed that but there's so many other kind of dazzling things happening in the book (laughs) that um it's you know it's when I go back and read it again I'll I'll make sure to pay extra attention to that
2: yeah well, and to use that as a bridge, I would love to discuss How to Find What You're Not Looking For, your new book, with you. Yeah. Dear listeners, we uh, are going to leave Jenny out of this chunk of the conversation. She is on the Newberry Committee for the current year and is not allowed to discuss this at all. Um, <laughs> but I've, I've just recently read How to Find What You're Looking For, which came out... Recently, September 14th. Yep, September 14th. So, about a month old now. And there are so many parallels between these two books, and and your first book actually, mm-hmm. it's it's so interesting. It's like reading a completely different version of the same story, a little
0: bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how I feel, but I don't necessarily. It's, it's interesting that you noticed that because I don't know if other people would necessarily know because it is such a good book. <laughs> Well,
2: well, so I reread the night diary, you know, in preparation to talking with you. And then I read how to find what you're looking for immediately uh, before that. And maybe that highlighted the similarities. But it's so interesting to me how they're, they're totally different stories, right? They're totally in different settings. Mm -hmm. like on different topics, but Mm -hmm. they, they have so many of the same like relationships. Right. And also I really loved the, like the food themes throughout. So in the night diary, they're always talking about all this delicious Indian food that they're making, you know, and like naan and samosas and chapati. And I'm just like, "Mm," the whole time (laughs) that's all I can think about. It makes me so hungry. And then in how to find what you're looking, what you're not looking for, the the family business is a bakery and they're always talking about, you know, lemon wearing pie and, and cookies. Mm. And it's just, it's delicious. So I wondered what your relationship is with, with food in life, because it, it has to be significant or else that would not be such a wonderful theme.
0: Yes. Well, thank you. I think I write about food a lot for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's just really fun. Yeah. And I really do love, I love food writing. I'm a big food writing fan. So, you know, I've read lots of food memoirs and watch recipe shows. I almost like read and consume like food media, maybe even more than I actually cook, but I do, (laughs) I do enjoy cooking, you know, when I have the time. And I, I, I think I also think that food is such a great way to reveal character, but for me, I think it's also been a way for me to connect to both sides of my family culture. So, you know, my mother is Jewish and grew up in the, the U.S. And my father is obviously from India and then grew up in India and then came here and met my mom. And they got married in 1968, which was part of what inspired my new book how to find what you're not looking for because a young couple does the same thing in 1967 with the same backgrounds. And it's seen from the perspective of an 11 year old Jewish girl whose parents run a bakery. And so, you know, I wanted to kind of explore the Jewish side of my family more. And I wanted to explore kind of that food culture more, Eastern European Jewish food culture that I grew up with as well. And from my mother's side of the family, and then my husband, who's also Jewish, his grandparents ran a bakery, a Jewish bakery in the Bronx. So I had my father-in-law to kind of talk about just the day-to-day because he grew up with his parents, you know, running a bakery. And so that all came together. And I, and I just felt like I felt like I can't not have food be some kind of feature, some almost like its own character in now every book I write. So.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very effective. And I really, this is just me probably because I'm, I, I think probably my favorite baked good of all time is black and white cookies. And mm. there is this spectacular recipe in there, which I'm going to try. I'm very excited. Thank yeah, you. Exactly. Um, but I love it because, so there's this bakery and it's this huge family theme. But also, like, she's making a black and white cookie, which has yeah. this duality to it of two different mm-hmm. sides. And it's just so representative of what she's trying to balance, like, in her own life and her own family and, you know, cross-cultural issues with her sister being somebody that's not approved. But And then it reflected back to the Night Diary where you've got, like, the Muslim and Hindu issue. And it just, it all goes together so nicely. I'm just so impressed. <laughs>
0: okay. Thank you. And of course, that's not an accident, that symbol of the black and white cookie, but yes. it, it worked because, you know, there's a lot of black and white cookies in Jewish bakeries. And so it all kind of felt organic and people could sort of see that as a as a symbol or not. But yeah, so, you know, Arielle is kind of putting that together as her sister, you know, wants to marry somebody from out of a, you know, a different religion and a different race. And there was that, that aspect for, for my parents. And I, and I think I've heard, you know, I've heard families say, well, it wasn't, you know, families who have had a similar situation sometimes will say to me, well, it's not, You know, I bet in my family or when that happened, it wasn't about race. It was just about religion, which is interesting that people want to separate that. Mm -hmm. But I think that the truth is, you know, people, families of different races getting married, just they notice that how they feel about it is up to their whatever personal lens they're kind of experiencing the world through, whatever their bias is. But I think to sort of pretend that we don't notice things, just kind of that like colorblind idea is just not real and it's not honest and it's not kind of understanding the real complications of what that can mean and embracing it at the same time. And so Arielle is trying to, you know, she really, so her older sister Leah falls in love with Raj, an India Indian college student, and and she notices that her parents seem to have you know, issues with both him being not Jewish, she's Hindu and Brown, but they don't want to say that part. They want to sort of emphasize the religious part. But then, you know, there's a moment in the book where Leah sort of calls them on it and says, like, really, you didn't notice that part of him? And so that I think was something that I wanted to kind of emphasize. And my parents, you know, my parents have been, my grandparents were against their marriage at first, um, my Jewish grandparents, and then came around. And I was born into a family where everybody had sort of done the work and, and figured it out as much as they could. Not that everything was perfect at that point, but I was very close to my Jewish grandparents. But there was, there were things to work through. And so, I think just knowing that, you know, knowing, being honest with that, I think is kind of the way we face any kind of bias we have or any sort of feeling of feeling that somebody is other to you.
2: I do like, too, that Ariel is so vocal, like she, as opposed to Nisha, who has the trouble with speaking at all sometimes. I like how Ariel is just like pushing, right? She has, as a child, she has the the freedom to be like, no, what about this? Like you need, we need to talk about this and keep kind of like pushing at it and pushing at it until something happens and it's necessary.
0: Yes, she was a different kind of character in the sense that she is sort of perceived as shy sometimes out in the world because she doesn't feel sort of fully connected and accepted by the community around her. But that's not really who she is, that she is bold and has a lot to say and wants to say it and is, is just trying to find the right places to do that. And she is pushing her parents and asking questions and and her sister and kind of asking things from other people. And so I I just, I, I like that about her, even though I created her, but
2: (laughs) she's a really likable character. I have to say, I I love The Night Diary. I really do. But when I read How to Find What You're Not Looking For, I was like, oh, mm." like I just I really liked her as a character. Just enjoyable and nice. You kind of want to hug her.
1: (laughs) I did want to ask you, Vera, have you read much Ruth Reichel? I have. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All of it. Pretty much all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cause uh, I guess I can't say anything else, but Ruth Reichel was something that came to mind or (laughs) someone who came to mind when you were talking.
0: So I I think i read all her, I remember just binging on like pretty much every food. I think she has like about five of them. I, I don't know, but yeah,
2: I think I've read them all. Speaking of food books, have you ever read the book Sunshine by Robin McKinley? Oh no. Okay. So it is a fantasy book about vampires, right? Sort of post apocalyptic. But the group the main character works in a bakery and the whole book is filled with these amazing decadent like ridiculous things she makes in her bakery. And when you said you liked the food writing, I'm like, it's not food writing in the in the normal sense, but it, mm-hmm. it's so good. Like it just makes you hungry the whole time.
0: Oh, okay. I'm writing it down.
2: <laughs> also speaking of pairing up uh, food with writing um when we do our normal uh book review podcasts, we tend to pair uh, a cocktail or a snack with the books that we're talking about, and there's mm. not um there's not any lack in in the night diary of of yummy snacks to pair with it while we're talking about it. But we were wondering if you have a favorite adult beverage.
0: I do. I do. I tend to be more of a wine drinker. Mm -hmm. So I like, you know, a nice Pinot Noir or a rosé in the summer. And I like a a gin martini. Yum! I go there. I don't like overly sweet drinks.
2: Perfect those are my preferences. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Sometimes when there's not an overt drink to match with the book, we like to talk to the author and be like, okay, okay and this is what the author enjoys. So we're going to sip on this while we're discussing your book.
0: <laughs> so funny. I was like, God, I've never talked about my <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, interview about my middle grade novels.
2: We are an unusual <laughs> book podcast. I have to say. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Do you have a favorite Newbery book or two or three or 10 or,
2: or none? That's fine. You can just say yours.
0: (laughs) I have a lot, but certainly, and then like Charlotte's web, right? That was a Newbery honor. Mm -hmm. It's probably one of my first ones, but more recently, I mean, I love Mercy Suarez, Changes Gears, and I love Meg Medina, and Other Words for Home by Jasmine Morga, and I think you guys are having them on the, on the podcast. So those are some of my recent favorite Newberry winners.
2: Do you have any projects coming up that you would like to tell anybody about?
0: Sure. So well, now I'm working on a sequel of The Night Diary. Ooh. And yeah, and and I really love visiting that world again and sort of being with the characters again. And it's a really... I just realized how deeply connected I was to them. So it's sort of like, oh, I'm with this family again. I missed you guys so much. So I I love that. But I I'm exploring that idea of kind of what happens after the traumatic event. How what do people bring with them? How do they rebuild their lives? What does that really mean? So I'm following the family kind of in the next year of their life and how they how they go on. And also thinking about that, you know, personally of everything that we've been through and how we are moving forward and what that means. So with the pandemic.
2: Yeah, that makes total, I was actually thinking when I was reading it, your family has lived through so many like big historical events and it just felt like you were talking about, you know, the partition of India and Pakistan and then, you know, the, the forties in the U S and I just feel like it should be a trilogy because the pandemic is another big traumatic thing. And it's funny that you're doing that because I, I was thinking that as I was reading yesterday, that that would be a really good sort of little, not, not a tr- straight up trilogy. Cause they're not all about the same people, but like a little triptych of right. books.
0: <laughs> That's really interesting. And, you know, I know people have sort of jumped right into writing about the pandemic as a way to process for me. I'm like, maybe I'll write about it. And like,
2: Ten years, <laughs> yeah. Let it settle a little bit. <laughs> it
0: will settle a little bit. I think I'll need that perspective. Yeah. I think what I'm finding
1: that I'm responding to the most are people who are writing about the themes that have come up, or the <laughs> the like isolation, mm-hmm. you know, the fear that we feel when there's no answers. That kind of stuff. I'm responding a lot to those pieces and those books. They aren't necessarily one-to-one, of course, right? They're right. not about, you know, because we all just lived through this. So I don't, I'm not, I'm not we're really responding. Or, yeah, I'm not really responding or like, I guess I don't, I'm not identifying as well with things that are just mm-hmm. like a recounting of exactly what. what,
2: what we right. were like, yes, that was last week.
1: Thank you.
0: Right, I know. <laughs> I know it's hard to sort of go back in it when we're still kind of living it. So that that is. But I also get the urge to sort of write about it, make sense of, of it as it's happening as well.
2: We are so, so happy that you could talk with us today. I am happy to talk to you guys and to Cheers. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Newberry Tart. You can check out more information about the upcoming Miami Book Fair and Vera's participation in that at miamibookfair.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz
0: Meitinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is NewberryTart.
2: That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.